So what I'd like to talk about tonight is the idea of uh, path and training, both of which entail something of a, a paradox because sometimes when we talk about a path, we always then start to think about uh, somewhere that I've got to get to, which subtly undermines our ability to be here And then when we think about training, it can activate all sorts of conditionings around discipline and and achievement. So they're tricky words to use, but on the other hand, they are words that that you'll find through all the texts left to us, attributed to the Buddha's teaching and this way of the Dharma. So if we can just hold those words quite lightly and to uh, find a way that they can apply to ourselves in our own practice in a meaningful way, in a supportive way, rather than a sort of intimidating way. Sometimes with this practice, and particularly working with uh, quite high ideals around awakening, these words like enlightenment, nibbana, we can activate a lot of... um, idealized, internalized notions about that that lands up being a, a, you know, rather than a sort of aspiration in a positive way can become a sort of a tyranny of never feeling we're quite there and in that, and in that way undermine our capacity to, to be here in a, a very simple and natural and open and full way, which is actually what the actual practice brings us to, so that the mind is malleable and reflective and able to discern and investigate with a sense of curiosity um, and you know joy of, at that curiosity about our lives and about reality, um, which is a, a beautiful capacity we have as human beings, but we tend to that tends to get shut down um, and we lose that sense of curiosity. So if we can just bring that in to approaching the material that I want to reflect on tonight, then it helps us to deactivate these sort of patterns around achievement and, and being intimidated by aspects of the... Of the um, verbalization of the of the teachings and remembering as Kilisara was saying last night the practice is always actually really just bringing us here deepening our capacity for recognizing the ground of being the fundamental awareness and presence innate within the heart and the mind and opening and recognizing that. But one of the things that the Buddha did say, which is quite worthy to contemplate, I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great harm and suffering as an undeveloped mind. And I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great benefit and happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. So this uh, cultivation, actually 
The original word meditation, bhavana, is usually translated as cultivation in the same way as we might think about cultivating a garden. We have the, the ground, the soil, the heart-mind, and we water that and grow wholesome seeds. We weed it, uh, it nourishes us, and so on. So we can think of this practice and this path and this training as a cultivation. And so the Buddha talked about this path, that the path in and of itself, one of the, another line that comes from the teaching, is that the path activity in and of itself breaks up that which, that which obstructs our capacity for freedom, well-being, insight, joy, happiness. So the path activity, so we're, we're interested in what is this path and activity and how do we apply it? And then the teaching goes on to say the fruit of that path activity arises according to the law of the Dharma, which is a very important line, actually, because it gives us the sense of an organic and natural unfolding. It's not like that we are coming from the position of me doing this and creating the outcome from my projected ideal, which is often how, or my strategies, or what I think should happen, which is often how we approach meditation, but also many other spheres of our life. But actually what it's saying is let's tend in this moment to applying path activity patiently, carefully, and develop that, and then let the outcome of that organically unfold according to this law, lawfulness of the Dharma in the same way as we plant a seed and then the flowers and fruits and vegetables grow according to their nature. So, our, so our, it's not that we don't, you know, perhaps have a sense for outcome, but our main focus isn't so much on projecting an outcome, but on tending to that which generates outcome, which is the mind, the power of this mind. All eventualities emerge from the mind. And when I was talking to a friend um, the other day in Cape Town, who's coming to Dharmagiri, a center that we founded in the Drakensberg in South Africa to teach a retreat about quantum theory and self-reflection, which is a subject that sort of is, is pretty daunting and extraordinary in many ways. And I thought I'd better prep myself because I was going to interview him for, uh, to promote the retreat. And we had a wonderful conversation, but I thought, well, I'll prep myself by reading um, you know, some quotes <laughs> about quantum theory, which, which one of, of which is, if you think you understand this, or if you're not completely befuddled by this, you haven't even begun to enter the territory. So I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but another one which struck, struck me was, um, I can't remember who it was by, but that the optimum place for the optimum dynamic for change is through the process of letting go, letting go of outcome, letting go ultimately of strategy. So, and I thought that's very Buddhist, that's very much at the heart of the practice. And then allowing possibility to emerge not from our preconceived patternings and strategies and what we expect to happen, but to come from a potentiality of reality, 
the potentiality of reality which is as yet undefined and intersects with moments of our attention, moments of our observation. And then what we choose and where we choose to move to and engage, that starts to generate um, outcome. And it's very complex because there's many factors that come to play, come into play in that process. But one of the primary factors is our own intentionality and our intentionality that is conditioned by patternings and previous assumptions and very deep um, views that we and life statements that we carry and have been conditioned with. So all of that, um, you know, when we intersect the moment with a path activity, we're sort of uh, breaking up perhaps the causes for just repeating patternings um, and allowing for quantum shifts, allowing for possibilities to emerge from a much more dynamic place and perhaps things then can come about or come to be both within our own processes in the world around that we would not have even imagined. Even the Buddha said that occasionally. He said he gave a te- would give teachings, and and he said once to Sariputra, his disciple, said, "Have you heard that before?" And Sariputra said, "No." He said, "Well, neither have I." <laughs> That's a good moment, <laughs> you know. So this this so the the path activity makahatikilesawa, which means applying moments of the path activity, breaks up kilesa, that which obstructs, and then the, 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 the fruit of the path um, arises according to the dharma. So this path is often talked, away in, 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 talked about in many different ways in the Buddhist traditions, dharma practices, um, but um, we can look at it perhaps through a very traditional frame and relating that to what we've been doing today and to try and keep it fairly uh, simple. Not to say that the, the actual process doesn't have its complexities, but actually there is, a, there is you know, it's one of the great blessings of the frameworks of these teachings, the structures of them, um, they're, they're manageable you know, and, and help us simplify and place ourselves in a process. So one of the structures is very simply talked about the path having three dimensions. The first, the foundation, this is familiar territory for many of you, but you know, the part of the path is repetition. <laughs> I'm going back again and again because we forget and uh, we get lost. But the foundation is what we mentioned last night, this ethical training is called sila, sometimes virtue. It's connected with understanding that the power of mind, again, that generates uh, from intentionality, from patterning, generates action, generates effects from those actions. So trying to diminish the effects from our ways of being, thinking, interacting within the relational field that generates responses that, that are discordant, perhaps at a subtle level and at a coarser level become actually generating um, spheres of suffering and, um, 
and bringing bringing results that we that really undermine a sense of well-being. There's a foundation trying to, in a way, part of the ethical training is generating a foundation internally, psychologically, and externally, cohesively within a community, society, family, so on, to to cultivate a foundation of wellness, well-being. And this is why this training sometimes is called, or Buddha called it, um, the that which guards the world, the, the training of the five precepts, or the training of ethics informed by conscience. And in consci- the conscience is defined in Buddhism as having two aspects: the the um, the sensitivity when there's been when we've done something that's disharmonious or unskillful to some degree or another, then the sensitivity to feel the result of that, you know, it, it lands in a certain way where we feel oh, that wasn't, that, that didn't land so well or it has a resonance, which is complex because sometimes that can trigger into deeper patterns of self-blame and self-hatred and guilt, all of which is very different from the sense of a, a pure, a purer sense of just remorse for harm done, which is more about the action rather than the sense of self. <laughs> so the sense of self to project onto that layers of guilt and self-blame is actually not that skillful. But to discern out from that and to feel just to feel that wasn't a skillful word or action or email. <laughs> Um, maybe I can do better. So if we feel that, then it, it trains us. It, it, we learn something and we adjust. So that's one of the guardians. And then the other is called the, the dread or fear of the result of doing harm. So sometimes we might feel a, an impulse, you know, sort of passion or a desire to harm or to, 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 to shoot back with a, with a sort of put-down word. And, and that comes from a place of pain. But then something might rise and say, well, actually, that just generates more difficult energy for us to deal with. Um, and maybe we'll, the intention is to hurt. And, and particularly if it's a strong action connected with violence or harm, then to feel the consequence of that is something we should dread. So that's a healthy, those are healthy aspects of conscience. And when they come into play, they, they're called guardians for very important reasons. They, when, when, when they dissolve in the society, then we have chaos. And when they dissolve internally, then we also have a lack of psychological cohesion to some degree. So this, that's part of the training that just goes on through a lifetime, really, because we're always in the field of relationship, acting, intentionality, um, and resonating with others and receiving results from our actions. So that foundation and then um, as that you know, inner cohesiveness from living in more skillful ways with more integrity begins to develop, it naturally begins to allow for this second middle part of the path that we're developing and focusing on particularly in this retreat which is the whole sphere of cultivating samadhi meditation, gatheredness, focused. Uh, and it's hard to do that when we're constantly dealing with a lot of feedback 
um, from discordant ways of living. It means we have to spend a lot of time just trying to digest and deal with the craziness of our lives. And that, that's generally the case, <laughs> even when we're trying to live very wholesome lives, because it's just there's a lot of, you know, um, we're quite porous as beings, and there's a lot of disturbance and and information and different energies coming to us that aren't necessary to do with us, but we're recipient, and then we have to process that. But if there's an internal foundation of some sense of of orientation around, you know, a fundamental sense of of, of sanity, and and um, I mean that in the way that sometimes it's talked about in Buddhist language, that this heart, regardless of ed- any everything that can happen to a human being, this fundamental nature of the heart. One of the ways of describing it is brilliant sanity, uh, brilliant health. So when we can touch into that, regardless, and we we feel we can we can trust what it does, it we can trust our own integrity, and that's that's important, and that allows then for the ground for things to gather. And then this training, the training of gathering, and uh, this is a big territory actually, samadhi. It's the middle part of the path, and then the the, the last part of the path, panya, prajna. Sanskrit means wisdom. It's the fruit of a gathered mind. And gathered mind sees the nature of reality, sees clearly, sees the false, sees the true, um, discerns the wholesome and the unwholesome, um, is able to free the mind from unnecessary and self-perpetuated suffering. Uh, so it's liberate, liberating, wisdom that liberates. So this is the fruit and the third dimension of the past. So all of these, one of the great Thai masters of the forest school, Ajahn Lee, talked about these three aspects. He says, like a bridge crossing a river with three pillars. So there's a pillar on the near bank and the far bank, which are easier because to, to build because they, their foundation goes into the earth. But the pillar in the, that goes, holds up the middle of the bridge has to go down through a deep flowing river. There's lots of currents in that river and that's harder to ground. And that's an analogy for grounding the middle pillar of samadhi through the currents of the mind. As we've discovered today, probably, that uh, trying to gather and be present, we find these currents, the momentum really of our lives, you know, as we experience that momentum energetically and through the thought forms and through the habits and, um, you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to be with. And, we, and that's why, you know, this cultivation of Somali and gathering, I mean, the first thing to say about it is that it needs a lot of patience. <laughs> and we have to understand that this is always, we're always starting again. It's not that we really get there in a certain way according to an ideal. You know, we do, we do have these ideals, but it's much more useful to think about it as just beginning again and trusting that we're not, we're not trying to bring about the outcome that we might have projected in time and space and onto the sense of self, but we're just trusting the process of these moments of path activity. That's our job. And, and if we pick it up in that way, it's very doable because the path activity, say, for example, today, 
was being with the breath, being with the sensations of the body. And we return to that again and again and we lose it. The, the problem with a word like path, it sounds ever so straight and you know straightforward and we just get on this path and we keep going. But you know, we know, <laughs> it kind of, we go all over the place and we lose the way and we fall off the path and we fall in a ditch and we get muddy and go crazy and we don't even, is there a path, isn't there a path? It gets very confusing. So it's, in reality, it's, it's not quite as you know, clear and straightforward as it sounds. But every time we can find a breath, every time that we feel a sensation of our butt sitting on the cushion, every time we just return and unhook a little bit from the crazy momentum and push and pressure uh, from, the, from our lives, then we've returned. And we return to the activity of the path. This path is also talked about in terms of training, many, many different ways of looking at the training, but we've been focusing today and developing this territory of the first foundation of mindfulness, and, uh, which is probably familiar again for, for many of you, and it's certainly a, a training that's, as we know, is uh, being taught in many different mediums now, and in different situations um, all over the world, actually. It's quite extraordinary to see the outreach of the training of mindfulness. And so just to go back to how it's articulated in the suttas, uh, to place ourselves within that practice. And the Buddha taught it when he opens the sutta, um, or when the sutta opens and it's being laid out, he taught it for certain results to come about, that this is a training for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and despair, for the passing away of pain and dejection, and for the attainment of the true way and the realization of nibbana, the unconditioned peace, the deathless. So the path activity, laying the seeds for these processes and results to unfold organically. The attainment of the true way is not so much like I've got the, you know, the right belief, but it's being able to truly and authentically know how to practice, <laughs> how to come back. And that is an attainment, actually. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a very precious, it's something very precious, because it means the practice of samadhi and gathering in this particular aspect of the path and this training of that through the first foundation, it means that we start to learn how to generate an inner sense of capacity and well-being from within ourselves. We can start to depend and take refuge in, in a reliability of the, 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 of the um, efficacy of this practice through our own agency without having to depend so much on the circumstances around us for our happiness and our well-being. So often 
we get so thrown by the circumstances of a very unstable world. And, you know, it's certainly very unstable. (laughs) And a lot of it we don't have control over. As things break apart, as great um, issues, huge issues impact us collectively and personally, um, we, we can't really, although we engage the world, we can't really depend on the circumstances around us to really give us fulfillment, well-being and happiness. They, they can and they do, you know, and we should try and develop those in the forms and the structures and the relationships we live within, but we can't ultimately depend on them because they're so shifting and so out of our control. And even more immediately, the things that we often depend on, our health, uh, our well-being, depending on you know, how we feel or the thoughts we have, all of that is very flickering and changeable. So to find a refuge, to know a refuge that's not so dependent, we can feel horrible. You know, and then we can still practice. So I woke up after the meal today, and it's really, uh, sometimes on retreats, I don't know quite why, but I guess it's all the sludge coming up <laughs> from, the, from the practice, but it felt like trying to, I said to Kitty Sara, it's a bit like waking up from the deepest dream from the, the movie Inception. I was like, went to some really, really weird place. It was sort of, I don't know if you saw that movie, it's a brilliant movie, but anyway, it's like this sort of, you know, dragging oneself out of the sloth of some deeply sort of um, unconscious, strange dreams, strange images, strange feeling tones, and generally, basically, feeling horrible. And then just think, well, you just get up and you go down, you sit with a group and you come to your breath, and you just start, and by the end of the sitting, you feel a bit more human. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of it. So that's, I depend there, not, you know, if I depend on the mood and the feeling and I go into all sorts of proliferation, then, then I'm, I'm probably going to spend a, long, a lot longer feeling not so great, but I just come and sit and be with the breath and feel the feelings and be with the sensations and be very patient with it all and gradually it just starts to shift and integrate and you know and then some sort of buoyancy starts to arrive but it's not that I can you know I've been practicing a long time and it's not that I that's that you know I'm just reached this status and nothing difficult or bad feelings happen it's not that at all there's you know we're susceptible as um fragile beings really, um, as porous beings, as feeling beings, we're susceptible all the time to feeling what's going around us, what's coming up from the moods we have from our old conditionings. Um, So we can't really depend on thinking that the circumstance or the conditions of the body and mind and feeling tones are are a sort of a barometer for how we're doing. I think that's a sort of fundamentals mistake. Um, but what is the barometer is how we can receive what's happening and what we're experiencing and then come into relationship with that from a place of mindful, steadying, samadhi, investigation. So, we, so, we're, so the ground of samadhi 
you know, is um, as we start to practice this gathering through being as the Buddha encouraged through this practice in the first foundation, we could start with just this accepting, allowing for what is here, and then we work from there. You know, and that's a, a moment by moment process because what is here changes. What we're with changes, and it's very dependent on so many factors what we eat, what's around us, who's around us, what's happening, internal conditioning, the weather. Yeah. So just accepting that, coming to relationship, what's felt. And then as is the training then in the first foundation, training of the path, Buddha begins by establishing or making primary this practice of being mindful. So that's our intention. We might lose it the next second, but at least we, we establish an intention to establish mindfulness, and then we start to practice that. The first encouragement of the practice is to learn or to practice withdrawing the mind or the attention from its preoccupations. So, and that's articulated in the suttas, withdrawing the mind from the longing and the hankering for the world. And we go there a lot, what we, what we feel hasn't happened yet, what we long for, what we want to bring about, what we hanker for, a lot of energy goes there. Or on the contrary, mind going to the sense of disappointment and grief for the world. And certainly there's a lot of that. You just have to scroll through the daily news and it's like a disaster show, generates and activates a lot of upset. and it's, you know, the withdrawing isn't a rejection and it's not a, you know, one stance we take. But it's withdrawing from the tendency to habitually go to those places of unsatisfactoriness so we can build capacity, we can build strength, we can build presence, we can build fluidity, receptivity, clarity through this gathering, and then that kind of a mind turned to the conditions of the world is a very different relationship. It's not being overwhelmed and activated. It's not being intimidated. It's not being caught in our negative patternings, defenses, but it's actually more able to engage. So withdrawing again and again, moment by moment, coming. Where do we bring attention to? Is this primacy of attention? So taking attention from those pathways and just bringing to, as the Buddha said, to receiving and working with, not really working with, but more receiving and being receptive to the experience of breath. Breath within the body. And this is, as Kirisara was saying, this is a breath, the breath energy, the, the, that which is moving, that which has sensation, that which where attention can land on that, because it's a very tangible experience. 
And sometimes we can actually slow and lengthen and deepen the breath so we can feel the breath. If you want to really know a quick way to this practice, just hold your breath, hold your nose, close your mouth. (laughs) Don't breathe. And then when the moment you breathe, you know immediately this is life. (laughs) This is your nourishment. This is important. This is the spirit here, your breath. So take a deep breath from time to time. The body likes it, it's very healing, nourishing. Feel the breath. And then you can feel the breath from the the coarser breath, the inhalation and the exhalation, you can feel the breath energy suffusing subtly through the body. It's that tingling movement. And in the exhalation, there's that feeling. There's a feeling of release, relaxation, letting, letting, letting go. It's a movement. It's a natural movement. The inhalation is receiving, nourishment, life force, connection. And then the exhalation. It's this, this necessary movement that we have to make in life, we have to put things down. We have a a wonderful friend in South Africa, Sister Abigantleko, who's now about 80 years old. And she spent about the last 50 years, many years of her life in community service. She grew up in a tribal Zulu community under a very rigid patriarchy, wasn't allowed to go to school as a girl and insisted eventually on going to school and sort of fighting that battle against the, the, the um, you know, what was expected of her at that time and landed up getting educated, entering school as a young teenager and then determined to become a nurse and graduated, I think eventually got her matric. She's about 50 or something. Just nothing stopped her, not apartheid, not Zulu tribal patriarchy. (laughs) Uh, She's just a formidable woman. And now at the moment, as 80 years old, she looks after about 20 children and young people that have been orphaned due to the AIDS pandemic, which she was in the midst of and engaged that and still going. And she's someone that we have, she's a very spiritual woman. She, she's able to do and live what she, live how she has been able to due to a force of spiritual power, really, that infuses her whole life. Um, and a, a sort of positivity and a canniness as well learning to deflect and move through these very oppressive systems and not be oppressed by them. So we have a, we have a, a very close friendship and relationship. We've known her for many years and we um, help to try and support her work. And she, in turn, supports us and many people with her wisdom. And more recently... Uh, she was awarded the 
Unsung Hero Award, by, which was offered by the Dalai Lama. And for the first time in her life, when she was in her late 70s, she left South Africa and flew to San Francisco, which was a, which was a great sort of um, adventure for her. And she was very, very thrilled to meet His Holiness. She said that was the main thing she really wanted to do, just to, and you know, there's a beautiful picture of her and him holding hands, this beautiful sense of joy and radiance between them. And she's been back now to the U.S. several times and has you know, captivated people with her stories. She's gone round and been fated and invited to give talks. But, and one of the, the outcomes of her becoming more well-known is that a book's been written about her life called Empty Hands. And she tells the story of the title of the book. And it's a really, really sweet story because it comes from her father, the relationship and a particular incident happened with her father and it was clear growing up with her father wasn't easy. Her mother died when she was very young so she didn't really know her mother. Her father was in the mines and not home very much. There was a lot of alcoholism. There was you know, a lot of abandonment and she having to make her own way. She said that actually her dog brought her up. <laughs> it's a very close relationship with her dog. But she clearly had also a lot of affection for her father. But her father was quite hard on her and wouldn't allow her to go to school. But eventually, ultimately, he relinquished his view. And when she did go to school and then she started winning, you know, gaining grades and and winning people over, he actually called a a meeting of the clan and held a party and and publicly apologized and and said how proud he was of her. So anyway, there was this one moment when she was a child and the father uh, calls her to him and says, go and get a handful of sand. So she picks up this handful of sand and bring it to me. So she brings this handful of sand and then he has these bananas. And, you know, this is um, at a time and in a place where food is very precious and uh, there's not a lot of it. So... The father said, would you like a banana? And she said, well, of course I would. Yes, I'd like a banana. And he said, well, how can you take it? And she said, well, I don't know. I've got this hands full of sand. And he said, well, you have to, you know, put the sand down so you have empty hands so you can receive. So that's why she called the book Empty Hands. And she's someone that emulates this emptying of the hands. And she said her main practice she gets up at three in the morning to meditate because the kids are, you know, from, from about five, six in the morning, it's just kids doing the, what kids do all day and it's very hectic. But she said at the end of the day, she, she works in a Christian metaphor. She just hands it all over. She empties her hands. She gives it back to God. She gives it back to a, a larger power. And this is a really important, and, and it's through that that she's really been able to re, rejuvenate herself and to keep going. And this is also with very much within the Buddhist training. It's this idea of handing back, of letting go. Or as Ajahn Chah once said when he was walking with his disciples in Thailand, a group of Western disciples, and he pointed to these really, really heavy boulders and he said to them, are they heavy? And the disciple says, oh, yes, Lung Poor, Venerable Father, very, very heavy. And he said, well, they're not if you don't pick them up. 
So in a certain way, our meditation and this out-breath, which we can take advantage of, is helping to illuminate what have we picked up that we don't need to carry around with us, all the boulders in our pockets, and then we think, oh, I feel so heavy. And as we know, as we get older in life, (laughs) we've picked up more things, you know. Um, A lot of things we picked up, we don't even know where they came from, but we feel obliged to lug them around. So we don't have to lug things around, we can put them down and we can create some space. Uh, We can take a deeper breath. We can breathe out and let go. (coughs) So just being with the breath, it's not just the training for concentration, but it's also uh, an actual direct experience and a metaphor for life. (coughs) Breathing in, receiving, being nourished, breathing out, releasing, letting go. The Buddha talked in the first foundation of the long breath, this and the short breath, and these are interpreted again as part of the training in different ways. Being aware, attention to the long breath, one interpretation from one of our teachers, Ajahn Sajita, I like it's just following the whole pathway of the, of the long breath. So you can start, say, sensation as the breath hits the nostrils, and then you can follow the pathway of the breath. And this is a very popular method, the inhalation, exhalation. And it's very tangible, and that's really helpful. And then sometimes you start to find that it can feel a bit clunky. Maybe there's a sense of gathering, some more subtle sense of presence and just being here, mind is settling. So then the short breath, you might just take your attention to remembering that the breath is vibration, so sensation within the body, maybe at the nostrils. I know Ajahn Chah talked a lot about enjoying that practice of just feeling the sensation there as a, as a sort of something to, to connect with, to hang on to. <laughs> or maybe sensation wherever you feel drawn, sometimes in the middle of the body, heart, belly, somewhere else in the body. Or you might direct your attention to an area where the sensation in the feeling tone isn't so turbulent or activating, maybe more neutral, pressure of sitting, palms of the hands, soles of the feet. So you can explore and moderate how attention is held. So it's a very simple practice withdrawing attention from the tendency to move into the pathways of disappointment, despair, grief, hankering, longing. fantasizing and so on and turning rather the attention back to here and just staying with that best we can just keep doing that staying with that until there's a sort of catching and you know what starts to happen in samadhi it gets to be more fulfilling to be here than to be in the realms the sort of castles of our mind the fantasies of our mental proliferations. 
as the as that mind starts to steady on the slow rhythm of the body and the body starts to be infused by the luminosity of the mind then there's this experience what's called ekagata this is experience of unification of the energies of body and mind with the bridge of the breath and attention helping those energies it's like the, a marriage it's very, very pleasant. So one of the fruits of samadhi is it's a pleasant abiding, not dependent on pleasurable sensory in, input or experience. And that's why the Buddha said, the pleasure of this practice, the pleasure of meditation in this way, the pleasure of samadhi is a higher pleasure than the pleasure of the senses. But patiently, little by little, practicing. So I call it the practice. Practice just returning again and again, whatever we're feeling, whatever state of mind we feel, especially these first few days as we come into retreats. Often we carry a lot of undigested tiredness from the momentum of what we've been with, what we've been carrying sometimes quite deep exhaustion. Or the mind's just fritting all over the place, or maybe we're upset. And that's all fine, you know, that's what we're with, that's the reality of what, of what it is to, to be here with our body and minds. This is how it is. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have a perfect thing happening. <laughs> We just sort of pull ourselves into the hall, however we get here, <laughs> throw ourselves on the mat, take a breath, <coughs> feel the sensation of the breath and start there. And that's the path. You know, we just again and again, returning again and again, try to avoid creating too much of an idealistic outcome for ourselves and setting ourselves up for feeling like we're failing and struggling, but being very content with a very simple process. And recognizing that as we do this, we're also supporting each other, we're doing this together. And we, uh, quality and the, of our efforts and practice contributes to this shared sangha field, community field, which supports us all. So I'm very glad we've been able to practice today. Certainly felt very beneficial for myself. I found it very beneficial. I'm really glad that we've got um, some days ahead of us uh, to keep 
um, coming back to cultivating the gardens of our heart, body and mind by just moment by moment applying moments of path activity, moments of mindfully being here, a breath, a body, with how it is, and trusting that that's enough right now. So we can just sit for a little while as we finish this evening together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.